Welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with John Hug, who was the founding software engineer at Vault DB and uh, has been working at Vault DB pretty much from day one. So welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast, John. Thank you. Uh, so first off, I think let's uh, start by talking about your background. So um, I noticed actually before Vault, you were at Vertica. So you've been at this kind of data management uh, uh, startup game for a while. <laughs> yeah, this is my third data management startup. And there was some, uh, some grad school in the middle. But uh, recently, I've been at Vertica. And now I've been at Vault for, for a little while. So I mean, so basically, uh, I guess uh, with, with uh, data management uh, software companies, it's all about uh, selling to the enterprise. So you're very much you've become very familiar with kind of the pain points and the the uh, concerns of enterprise customers. Yeah, I mean, certainly for the the last two companies I've been working at, it, it's been uh, about sort of larger problems uh, that that typically you have. Uh, in, in successful companies, whether that's, you know, too much data, too fast data, um, more processing on the same amount of data than you can do with other systems. Uh, and so, so Volt is sort of, uh, Volt and Vertica both sort of stepped in to answer those questions from, from different directions at different times. Um, but I, I'm very much, uh, very much dealing with a lot of different businesses. One of the best things about these jobs and, and this job in particular is, is talking to all, all the people who have different problems. And so, from one week to the next, I might have to get to talk to somebody about a problem in, in telecommunications, a problem in Internet of Things, a problem in finance, or, or something you know, a little bit more interesting. We've got some customers at, at Volt who, uh, who do um, systems for marathon timing, which is you know, kind of a really different kind of problem. Uh, speaking of which, actually, uh, just coming back from Strata Singapore, and uh, one of our areas of focus there was smart cities because of country of Singapore itself has a huge focus on smart cities. So yeah. is this something that you folks at uh, Volt are starting to hear about? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and this is something, you know, there's sort of a, I don't know where the delineation between Internet of Things and smart cities and all these different sensor networks are, but Volt is definitely a, a platform that's primed to, to do these kind of things. We've uh, Volt is being used in, in a rollout in several countries for various smart cities initiatives. In, in the United Kingdom, uh, the power grid is going to be using Volt DB to do some of their sort of smart grid technology. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole a huge uh, initiative in Japan uh, to, do, to manage 6 million sensors uh, all, over, all over Japan and uh, you know, a numerous other use cases that, that we're working on at Volt to, to uh, kind of work on this sort of smart cities, smart grid. Uh, smart sensor networks. So fundamentally, John, uh, are, are the architectures that power these smart city applications kind of similar to the the typical enterprise architecture? Um, well, I think a lot of people who are coming to, to VoltDB specifically are coming at, at a at, because they have scaling pain, because they're trying to do something that they weren't able to do uh, doing whatever they were doing before. And so whether, you know, whether you're, you're a giant company like Hewlett Packard uh, or, or a really small company with a couple of people in a loft somewhere, um, you know, a lot of people, these, a lot of times these problems are sort of starting from scratch and they're trying to figure out, well, I need to rethink what I've been doing and figure out how to solve it at the scale I'm talking about. 
Uh, and so, so you know, the smart cities is, is sort of a new problem because you're talking about sensors on a, on a really new scale um, and reacting to that. But, but most of the use cases we talk to, whether they're really established companies or new companies, have new problems and are sort of learning as they go. It's a really exciting time to do what we do. So when you're talking about smart cities and sensor networks, you're talking about streams and real-time analytics. So from your perspective, uh, what are the key differences between streaming and traditional analytics? Sure. Um, well, there, there's sort of two big things. Um, one of the big differences for streaming analytics and traditional analytics is that with streams, uh, you typically need to know the kinds of questions, the kind of uh, actions, the alerts, before you go and collect that data. So as the data is being collected, you, you apply, you, you get the answers to those questions, you get the answers to the data. You need to sort of set up the question in advance. Uh, whereas uh, with traditional analytics, you collect the data and then you ask the questions. Uh, the, my, my analogy for sort of how to think about this is, you know, if, you, if you're uh, trying to get into a busy nightclub and, you know, one option to figure out how many people are in there is to have the bouncer stand outside with a clicker, clicking every time someone goes in, um, that's more the streaming analytics. The traditional analytics is sort of going into the club and trying to do a head count of everybody who's in the club. Um, if you don't have the guy standing out there in front, then then, then you don't you can't get a count that way. You need to think ahead of time and have him standing out there before anyone goes in. But uh, but that that's sort of um, one of the big differences. Another big difference is is that you have a big trade-off between streaming and traditional analytics between the value of the immediacy of the data and the power of batch processing. Um, when all your data is static, when it's a, a data set that isn't changing particularly quickly, uh, you can run really complex processing against that. Um, the processing is often deeper and more meaningful than you can with streaming. Uh, much of machine learning uh, works this way, where you're running your machine learning against a large data set. Uh, and you need that data set to tease out relationships, grouping, rules, etc. The downside to the traditional uh, view, the, the traditional analytics, is that uh, the data is no longer immediate when you have this rich understanding. This rich understanding comes minutes, hours, sometimes even many hours after that data is fresh. Streaming is all about fresh understanding, being able to leverage uh, the power of, 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 of big data analytics at the time that the event happens, often so that you can use that information that you get at ingestion time uh, to take some action, to change uh, how you respond to that event. And you can't do that with batch. So do you need to write special code to do streaming? Well, there are definitely a lot of different approaches to, to, to streaming uh, analytics, to streaming uh, operations. Um, there are some tools out there that give you sort of uh, WYSIWYG editors, that give you drag and drop processing. And um, I think that these tools are, are great. Uh, but they, they, a lot of times that these kind of systems, they fall down when you want to do something that doesn't quite fit in the mold they give you. And in the, sort of this newfangled world of stream processing at scale, that happens a lot. And so you end up with something that works great as a demo. It works great when you're trying to do something straightforward. But when you want to go uh, customize something, you have an additional learning curve. There's a second sort of hidden hump behind that. And, and Volt, you know, sort of from the beginning, what we focused on is really making uh, the, the hard problems easier, making uh, the impossible problems sort of possible or, or near impossible problems possible, and, and really focused on not having that second hump. So with Volt, uh, 
sort of we give you the tools to build these kinds of processing pipelines from the beginning. And once you learn that tool set, uh, then, then for the most part, there isn't a surprise down the road. Everything we do, whether it's the easy vote problems that, that you know, we could write in our sleep or the really complex new and interesting problems that, that really push what we're capable of, it's all under the same framework. Uh, so the answer to do you need to write code is a complex one. Very often you do, but that not, not always. And we're always moving toward, 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 toward a, having more and more things require less and less effort on the part of the user. But here at Volt, we, what we don't want to do is give you sort of cookie cutter recipes that you can go and use uh, where when, when you need to do something that's just a little bit different, it requires a tremendous amount of work. We want to do things that are generally applicable to the things that people are doing. Because one thing is that our customers, as they're solving problems, a lot of times we're learning from them as well. They're saying, well, we did this with Volt, and it never would have occurred to do, for us to do things that way. And so that flexibility has been a big advantage for Volt uh, as, as people do more and more challenging things with it. You know, I mean, in, uh, one of the things that I guess uh, uh, has come to light recently, in, uh, particularly from the folks at Google, is this notion of uh, a unified engine. I guess the Spark guys do this too, the whole... Uh, if you had an engine that can do both batch and streaming, mm -hmm. um, then maybe you, you, I guess, I guess even if you did, the analysis is still different between batch and streaming is what you're saying, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's a really interesting area of research about what needs to be done in batch, what needs to be done in streaming. And, and, you know, sort of, I, I've scratched the surface a little bit. There are definitely some, some areas that are a little bit gray. Um, where people are trying to take things that are traditionally done as batch and do, move them into the streaming world. Uh, but but for the most part, yeah, these are very different kinds of processes. And so you can get into things like, um, you know, if you look at uh, Spark, for example, that you mentioned, Spark has Spark and the core, which is a very much a batch-oriented uh, tool, and it has Spark streaming. And the way that they've built Spark streaming is they've they've taken all the batch paradigm and they've baked it into, well, let's take uh, every one second and run a batch on that one second window. And so it's, it's, it's really just the, the, the extension of batch as close to streaming as possible. But it's not true stream processing for many kind of workloads because you've got uh, increased latency. You've got kind of, you're not dealing with things on a per event basis the same way you are uh, with, a, with a true event processing system that does a per event decision-making process that integrates uh, action with with understanding uh, on a per event basis so how do you how do you combine uh batch processing results with stream processing results i, I think that's a, that's a good question um so lots of ways and and that's that's by design right we, we, as i, I kind of talked about before um our goal is to be sort of a flexible platform what we really want to do is, is take the things that we're really good at, which is the distributed systems, the, the data management, um, essentially uh, abstracting away where your data is, managing hardware and software failure, guaranteeing your data is safe, guaranteeing your data is right, it's consistent, um, and, and enabling high performance. We wanna do those things. Beyond that, the business problem is your problem. And so when it comes to how, how do we integrate with batch systems, well, we, we, first of all, we don't want to pick. We don't want to say, well, Volt only integrates with this particular batch system. We only work with, say, Spark, or we only work with, say, uh, you know, HDFS tools. Volt wants to be flexible in how it integrates. 
Um, so whether you're connecting to Spark, whether you're connecting to other HDFS type systems, whether you're connecting to OLAP stores, whether you're connecting to something completely custom, um, what maybe that's in Amazon's cloud, some custom platform as a service tool that Amazon has. Um, we look at two big ways to get data from Volt into the batch system, and that's push streams as well as uh, transactional snapshots. So from getting data from Volt into the uh, into the batch system, we support push streams from Volt so that for each event, you can say push this data into my downstream batch processing system. So that you end up with a stream into Volt, that's your event stream, and a stream out that could be a filtered stream, an aggregated stream, an enriched stream, um, or, or a deduped stream into your downstream system for deeper analysis. Uh, in addition to that, that push model, uh, we also support transactional snapshots. And you can do that on a per table basis. So you can have a, a data set in VoltDB, and you can say every five minutes, export the current state of that data set into my downstream system so I can run batch processing. Um, and we do that behind the scenes. It's a non-blocking thing. If you want to schedule five-minute transactional snapshots, you can do that. So that's, that's how we get data out of VoltDB. Um, getting data into VoltDB is basically the same way that the user application gets data into VoltDB. So we have uh, native clients, we have JDBC connections, we have HTTP REST connections, uh, we have bulk ingesters, bulk loaders uh, for either CSV data, data over sockets. We connect to Kafka, RabbitMQ, a whole number, a whole number of uh, sort of messaging systems, log systems. Um, and so any of those systems can be used by the batch processing to get data into VoltDB. We have Hadoop input and output formats so that Hadoop tools, whether that's Spark or traditional MapReduce uh, or Hive, those kinds of systems can move data into VoltDB. And so, you know, kind of given this overview of all the different ways we get data out or in, what people can end up building um, is either one-way pipelines where Volt is the sort of a filter and enricher, a, a, a fast data ingestion engine for the, for the batch processing system, uh, or and this is a lot of the really interesting apps that we're getting into, you end up with uh, feedback loops where perhaps you've got the batch and the stream processing system working in concert. There's a set of rules in the stream processing system in VoltDB that are being applied on a per-event basis. The data, after it goes through Volt and after it's acted on by these rules, is pushed into, say, Spark. Spark then uses machine learning in Spark MLlib, for example, to generate a new set of rules and those rules are loaded into Volt. And so you get a fresh set of rules based on the most recent data every few minutes or so in many of these applications. Uh, so if your machine learning models change or drift over time, uh, Volt can always be applying the latest model to your data. You can get uh, better customer segmentation that way, better uh, uh, clustering, all kinds of things uh, get better when you've got that very live model within the VoltDB, when you've got that feedback loop between your batch system and your streaming system. So you, you touched briefly on uh, transactions and analytics. Um, so to what extent do uh, your customers worry about real-time analytics? Yeah, so, so, so I mean, real-time is a really interesting I mean, uh, real-time analytics that are coming off of real-time transactions, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, one of the things that, that Volt is, is really, I think, makes it a little bit special is that we really focus on, on low latency operations. Uh, so Volt can ingest an event stream and, and process that event stream, but also respond to the source of those events 
uh, typically in around a millisecond. That depends on hardware. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. It depends on configuration. Uh, but our goal is, is to be around a millisecond or two response. And what that lets Volt do uh, is it lets Volt be injected into the active path of a lot of kinds of applications. So that we have fraud detection applications in production where between swiping a credit card and the uh, transaction being approved or denied, uh, a Volt transaction is made to decide, is this some, a transaction we want to let go through? We have uh, telco applications where between placing a call and that call going through, the application decides, well, you know, is this some, a call we should let through for billing policy reasons? Is this a call we should go through for fraud reasons? Is this a call we should go through for, uh, for any other reason, yes or no? And that actually gets responded back to the calling system, which lets the call through or not. Uh, and so having that low latency, having that millisecond or two, allows us to go into customers who have latency SLAs, where they have to respond to that call in 50 milliseconds, where they have to uh, respond to you know, that, that particular uh, customer within 200 milliseconds. And we can say, look, Volt is not going to take a big chunk of your latency budget. You can put Volt in this latency budget and still do all the things you want, and now you can do more because you've got Volt in there. So that, that's sort of the, the we, when we talk about real time, a lot of times what we're talking about is, is, is not human scale several seconds, but machine scale being injected into the decision path. So how, how does a system like Vault compare to the, uh, I guess, uh, old school complex event processing systems? First of all, Vault is much more general purpose. Uh, Volt is, is a full SQL relational database with full persistence um, and, and making it, you know, look, look, you can use it for a much more of a, a natural transaction processing system. Um, but it also has these, these streaming analysis, streaming analytics features, stream processing features. Uh, so, so you can do a lot of the CEP workloads. The difference is our Volt certainly has a lot bigger state. We have customers in production with terabytes. Uh, and that's not something that's easy to see with, with CEP systems. Uh, the clustering and fault tolerance is much more robust. Um, it's vanilla SQL, so you can run uh, you can run SQL the way you're used to with a MySQL or an Oracle or SQL Server, uh, and that's usually a lower learning curve for people coming to these systems. We also have integrated transactional state, so it's not a system that analyzes the previous 30 seconds or the pre previous minute. It's a system that can do the previous 30 seconds of the previous minute, but also um, keep track, keep aggregates for days, keep keep a lot more information, keep lookup tables that are transactionally updated, correlate between two different streams that, that are happening at a scale that's tricky for CEP systems. Uh, so that, that's sort of some of the advantages of VoltDB. In terms of what, what are the trade-offs made to do that, um, well, some of it is just newer architecture with a, with a little bit more maturity, so it's, the system is just a, you know, a more modern system. But some of it is that the latency of VoltDB is not targeting the same latency that some of these CEP systems are targeting. So where the CEP systems were targeting sort of in the microseconds, maybe 100 microseconds or so of latency, VoltDB, as I said before, is sort of in the 1 to 2 milliseconds. And what that means is that VoltDB is not being used for, for the active high-frequency trading apps. But the interesting thing is that the CEP systems aren't being used anymore for the active high-frequency trading apps because those traders have moved on from 100 microseconds into the 10 microsecond range, and they're starting to write custom C code you know, on, on as close to the metal as possible in there. The, the vendor-supplied CEP systems don't do that. So we think that for a lot of the systems that aren't, you know, high-frequency trading, um, you know, VoltDB at 1 to 2 milliseconds is, is, is fast enough 
And the, the benefits of, of being a little bit higher latency than these CEP systems are tremendous. So can Vault DB manage exactly once delivery of events? Yeah, so, so um, it's a, exactly once is a really interesting problem. Um, typically, the way that exactly once is implemented, whether you're sort of explicit about it or implicit, is by, by having a source that can deliver events at least once and then by deduplifying the events. So if you if and if event is you don't you try not to process anything more than once, but you have a source that holds on to things until they're confirmed, and and this is often called uh, item potency, for example. But it's, essentially, it's a it's a fancy way to say that we we do duplify um, anything that you see twice. So VoltDB, because uh, it's strongly transactional, because it's full acid, it's serializable acid, uh, and it does that across a cluster. It's very easy in VoltDB to say, "Have I done this before?" I can just take my transaction and at the beginning of the transaction, I can say, have I done this before? And that makes it a lot easier to build idempotent apps, these apps that deduplify, that do things effectively only once, even though the source may be sending them more than once. Uh, so if you combine VoltDB with Kafka, with, uh, with your client that can deliver events in, in at least once way, uh, then VoltDB can very easily get effective exactly once uh, delivery. And one of the other things that Volt does that's different than a lot of systems is that when we talk about sort of deduplication and exactly once delivery, we're almost always talking about one system. So whether that's one stream processing system or one state managing system, right? When you talk about uh, Storm and you want to say, I I'd like exactly once processing, then you can add Trident to Storm and you'll get effective exactly once processing. The same thing where you get at least once plus deduplication. Uh, but with the Storm case, it's limited to just Storm. If you have Storm and you add Redis, for example, you don't get ex effective exactly once processing when you have two systems. Uh, the, side, the, the system Trident that gives you exactly once in Storm doesn't guarantee that you get exactly once anywhere else. Uh, so that's one of the advantages of Volt because Volt has this stream processing engine integrated with this uh, traditional SQL state engine where we've got you know, ACID transactions on, on SQL tables, uh, then you get, you get a bonus, you get both of these get effective exactly once processing. You get exactly once database transactions and exactly once stream processing uh, by doing this item potency with a lot less work. Uh, so it's actually a really, really nice system. And we've one of those times where I had mentioned earlier, sometimes our customers do things that are counterintuitive to us. Uh, we One of our customers, MaxCDN, which is one of the top CDNs, uh, content delivery networks in the world, uses VoltDB to, for, the, for their uh, billing policy account and account um, sort of statistics so they can bill their customers. And one of the things they do is they batch up hundreds of, of uh, sort of web clicks, whether somebody clicks on a URL, somebody clicks on a different URL, they, they batch up all these updates to their database and they feed that into VoltDB as a single event. So maybe it's a hundred clicks get pushed into Volt as a single event. And, and that's a little counterintuitive to us because we don't think of Volt as sort of a system where you'd need to do that for speed reasons. But what they're doing it for is for, uh, for deduplification reasons. So they have a little, they generate a unique ID for each batch of all these statistics they want to update. Um, and then when they do start their transaction, they just say, hey, have I done this batch before? I have? Oh, I'll drop it on the floor. Uh, or if I haven't done the batch before, I get to process the whole thing. And so the fact that they can easily tell if they've done something before means it's safe to push it multiple times. That lets them build simpler client infrastructures. The fact that the app can't fail in the middle of a transaction in Volt because Volt transactional guarantees say that the, either the whole thing happens or it doesn't, by sending this batch of 
what amounts to you know hundreds of clicks and many thousands of counter updates into VoltDB as, as a transaction, they don't have to worry about, well, what happens if, if 500 out of 700 of those updates don't happen? What if the machine crashes around 300? If they were pushing into, uh, well, they were using HBase as an alternative. If they were pushing into HBase, they had to worry about, well, what happened if it failed in the middle of updating these 700 counters or these 2,000 counters? I have to go through and check which of the counters applied and which didn't, or my billing policy is wrong. So with VoltDB, they've got uh, acid transactions. They've got effective exactly once processing. They did something we didn't really expect, and they sort of put a batch of updates onto it. And what they told us is that the number of lookups they have to do using HBase and Storm was about a million times higher than with Volt. And we thought they were exaggerating, but they, they weren't. <laughs> we did the math. Um, because they only have to check once for these updates in VoltDB as compared to running many, many back and forth checks into HBase to see if they've done these counters before. It allows them to get consistent, accurate billing um, on, a, on a much, much, much smaller cluster. And they've got uh, CPU headroom to spare. So it's a big TCO win for Volt. And it's all leveraging transactionality in stream processing, integration between state and processing. So we talked about smart cities. And uh, you just mentioned this content delivery network. So are there any other application domains and areas that uh, excite you in the area of real time? One of the really interesting things that, that Volt is getting into now is, is sort of this, this growth in micro-personalization. So the idea that you're going you're gonna to see a website. So regular, per regular, regular personalization isn't enough. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so what, what we say by micro is, is it's not just uh, drawing a web page that's customized to you, right? Like when I log into ESPN and it shows me the Patriots, uh, it, that's not enough in the future. The, the, the future is if I'm clicking around on the site and I'm doing things, my next page is not just going to be a result of what they know about me, but it's as a result of what I've just recently done in the past. Uh, and I think that that's something where they can they can then show me not just, you know, you hear about this a lot in advertising, but a lot of it in terms of content, in terms of engagement, in terms of showing, trying to guess what it is the next next thing you're going to be interested in. Uh, the volume of that kind of processing for some of these big sites uh, is, is tremendous. And it's not just websites. It's moving into mobile apps. It's moving into notifications, uh, trying to predict where things are going and being able to, to handle the flood of the user did a bazillion things. You know, some small number of them are interesting be able to pick those interesting things out, combine them with the other interesting things based on trends glowing, going on globally and being able to inject yourself into the path of I'm drawing a new web page or a new uh, app screen for this user and customize that based on all those different variables allows you to be more accurate. I think that stuff is really, really interesting. And, and you know, so certainly Volt has many, many use cases and we've got a lot of customers. It, it, seems, like, uh, it seems like this example uh, is... Uh, headed towards more machine learning. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that some of the customers who are doing this with Volt are, are using Volt in concert with machine learning. So a lot of the rules for what to do when someone has these three behaviors, uh, then show them this, that could be generated in, say, like a Spark ML lib. Right. right? right. But, but applying those rules, detecting, oh, well, this person did those three things, so they're in this category, uh, is something that has to be done uh, in, in the live event, it can't be done in batch. So very often you're right, there, there's a mix of machine learning and stream processing. Uh, so a lot of times it's sort of, you know, rules engines uh, or, or uh, 
or, or other sort of clustering to, to understand that thing. The real important things for stream processing, we're doing things per event, per person, we're applying these rules. Whereas the machine learning is sort of, who I was talking before, is, is done on a data set. It's done on, on thousands of people. The rules are generated based on a, a population. Uh, so it's the batch and the streaming are a mix of the personal and the aggregate. So I wanted to close by uh, just talking briefly about the recent blog post you wrote about, uh, I guess, uh, cloud cloud performance using a benchmark called YCSP. So maybe give us a quick overview of uh, what YCSP is and what were your key findings. Well, YCSP is the Yahoo Cloud Serving Benchmark. Um, and it's a benchmark that Yahoo came up with some number of years ago to sort of test different data stores uh, that, that run in the cloud. So it's a bit more focused on, on key value-ish workloads, um, on horizontally scalable workloads. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, the antithesis of some of the transactional benchmarks that people have been running on Oracle and SQL Server for years. Um, it, it's, it's, we, we picked it here at Volt um, beca because it's something that, that people, uh, it's an existing thing that people are familiar with. It's not necessarily the, the best application to showcase what VoltDB can do because it's not particularly transactional. Uh, it doesn't involve a tremendous amount of processing. But, but it's a familiar benchmark, and we wanted to do this as sort of a we – we, when we did this benchmark, we wanted people to uh, – we didn't want people to ha have questions about the benchmark, have questions about the clouds. We wanted, we wanted to be as straightforward as possible. So in the future, we may use some other benchmarks, but that, we thought that was a good one to get started with. So what, what were some of your key findings? So, so to talk a little bit about what we did, um, we, we took uh, this YCSP benchmark, we took Volt, the, the server uh, technology, we, we put Volt on, on four different cloud platforms, uh, Google Cloud, uh, Microsoft uh, Azure, Amazon, of course, uh, Amazon Web Services, and also IBM SoftLayer. Uh, and basically, we kept the benchmark the same. We kept the server technology the same. We tried to select a similar uh, of cloud instance types or sort of similar cloud platform uh, hardware. You can't pick hardware, but very similar uh, similar as we could for the compute and for the memory and things um, and the networking, importantly. And then, and then the variable we changed was the cloud itself. And so this, this is the kind of thing that our customers ask us about, you know, which, which clouds uh, should we be running in? And this is sort of our, our first benchmark um, comparing these four platforms. We may do more in the future, um, but it gives you a little insight into how one particular workload, that is VoltDB and YCSB, uh, performs on these particular instance types across different clouds. Uh, so it doesn't say, you know, your experience is going to match Volt's experience exactly for different software, different configuration. Um, but what it says is it's possible that you, you know, that for some workloads at least, and some very realistic workloads, um, some of the cloud providers perform really differently than others. Uh, we also learned a lot about the usability of the different clouds and sort of uh, what the notes are. And the guy, uh, Tim Callahan at Acme Benchmarking, whom, whom we contracted to run these benchmarks independently, um, is going to do a follow-up post, uh, presumably this week, about some of his experiences running running these uh these different cloud providers. I should just cover, uh, I kind of didn't mention this before, but just in case any of the listeners are interested in, in the results, uh, we found that um, in terms of absolute performance, uh, the bare metal technology that SoftLayer offers 
has a real uh, leg up on on the virtualization technology that that Google, Amazon, and Microsoft offer. Uh, so if you're looking for pure compute and you're looking for both absolute performance and price performance, uh, the IBM SoftLayer bare metal offering was uh, a clear uh, standout in that measurement. If you're looking for more of a broad ecosystem in terms of the the, the systems that have uh, surrounding storage and processing and queues and, and all the things that these uh, that Amazon, Google, and and Microsoft offer, uh, the Google platform really stood out to us both in terms of absolute performance, in terms of price performance, and in terms of usability. So those were our big results. Uh, there's a lot of sort of ongoing work to do uh, additional benchmarking and kind of verify. Some some uh, external users have offered to reproduce the benchmark and. Our philosophy at Volt is that if, if the benchmark doesn't isn't reproducible by external users, it's not very interesting. So we've made all the code uh, available for any, anyone can download and, and run this benchmark anywhere they want. So in terms of the performance and the uh, performance per dollar, uh, mm -hmm. I think that that's easily quantifiable. But I think usability, that gets a little more ambiguous, right? Well, the performance per dollar, just to be clear, you know, some of the instance types are not exact matches, right? right it's not right. like you can say, I'd like, you know, this exactly this much compute resources, this much memory. Um, and Google had, uh, the instances we used with Google had 120 gigabytes and the Amazon instances had 60. So they're a little bit different. You're not totally comparing exactly the same things, but you're similar things. Um, but the price performance numbers, Barring some of the memory and stuff, are, are actually pretty good numbers to compare against. Uh, so I think that there, there, there's certainly there's a lot of value there when you're looking at the comparison. In terms of the usability, absolutely, it's a qualitative thing, um, and and depending on what you're looking for, you know, speaking specifics, uh, there's a lot of really nice uh, sort of things that you can script and 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 um, security tools that Amazon offers. They offer a lot of things for license compliance that maybe the other clouds don't offer. Uh, so if you have those needs, then you know Amazon clearly wins out. Um, in terms of how the pricing model, uh, the Google pricing model just blew us away. It's it's kind of a you don't have to worry about reserved instances like you do in Amazon. You don't have to worry about um, whether you should prepay or or pay monthly. Uh, the Google model is just you know the more you use it, the the more discounted subsequent hours are in a given month. Uh, so so that that was a you don't have to worry about not getting the best deal. And and that also matched up with some of our best price performance numbers. So we were really impressed with the Google Cloud. So actually, uh, you said something at the start of this uh, discussion we have on YCSP that uh, your customers ask you about these different cloud providers. So I take it that uh, you folks at Vault are hearing from customers about cloud computing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're, we're slightly uh, under 50% of our customers are in production in various clouds. Um, it, it, it's a, uh, we got, we used to be, I think. And well, these are, these include, these include. Customers have been getting bigger. We've, we've, uh, we've got a few more who are deploying on premises, but, but there's a substantial portion who are running in clouds asking about what the best way to run in clouds are. And, and we're, we're sort of, you know, as the clouds change really quickly, we're working on trying to understand that as best we can as well. And these include, to be clear, these include the large enterprises, right? Some of the large enterprises are running on the cloud, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I think the trend is that, uh, uh, you know, cloud may not be 100% of uh, an enterprise's compute, but it's not going to be zero, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, this has been great. Uh, uh, thank you, John Hunt.
Oh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you, Ben.